Welcome to the Relational Grace Podcast, where we share the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm your host, Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son. Last episode, we talked about David and his big battle with the Amalekites in the Negev. While that was going on with him, the exact opposite was going on with Saul. Saul was encountering Israel's old enemy, the Philistines. They had amassed a massive army, and to this point, the Israelites had been successful defending them by fighting them off as they had always engaged in mountainous terrain. But the Philistines had pushed and manipulated the battle so that they could fight in the Valley of Jezreel, which was flat land. This was beneficial to the Philistines because they had iron chariots. Any military strategist would tell you that it looks as if the Israelites would be slaughtered. The reason this battle was so crucial and that Saul had to fight it was because they were at a place called Beth Shan, and if the Philistines were to take that location, they would cut Israel in half. This location was too crucial, and Saul was forced to take the Philistines on in open combat, in flat terrain, taking on their iron chariots. It seemed suicidal. God had abandoned Saul for David. So Saul turned to a medium. Saul himself had outlawed the use of mediums. It was outlawed in the law of God. But Saul was driven to the very brink of insanity by having to hold things together, by the giant adversity that faced him, having to fight the Philistines. When he saw this medium, he disguised himself because he knew that if the medium recognized him as King Saul, that the medium would not consult upon evil spirits. To Saul's dismay, the medium conjured up the spirit of Samuel, the great prophet. Although Samuel had been dead for many years, he spoke truthfully to the situation at hand. He said that Saul would in fact fight this battle, and Saul his sons, and many of his army would suffer a very tragic defeat. Saul's dilemma was over. He looked into the future. The future was clear. There was only disaster and death for him and his kingdom. Meanwhile, David waited back at Ziklag, unaware of what was going on. This is the topic of Pastor Harris's teaching in this episode, the death of Saul and the ramifications of that day. So let's hear what Pastor Harris has to say in this seventh episode of the Saga of David series titled, the death of Saul. Well, as David returned in victory from his crushing defeat of the Amalekites, he began to ask himself some probing questions. Think about it. Here he was, a warrior. Since the days of Goliath, he's done nothing but fight. And yet, when he was just a young teenage boy, he had been anointed. His head and beard had been anointed to be the king of Israel. But his question was this. When was this ever going to happen? God said you're going to be king. He's been now fighting against Saul and against his troops for almost 20 years. And he was no closer to being king than he had been when he first started. Now, you see, the years of running from King Saul, these years of trial and trouble, had taught David one thing. If he was ever going to become the king of Israel, it couldn't be by his own efforts. I mean, he's exhausted himself. He has done everything he's known to do to place the crown upon his head. And if doing it by your own abilities was possible, he would have been wearing the crown, but he wasn't. He knew now, at this point, as he sat in Ziklag, that God would have to put a crown on his head or he would never wear a crown. It all seemed so hopeless, at least in the natural. However, what David did not know was this. If a sovereign God anoints a man to be a king then that man is going to be king. You can just take it to the bank. If God declares it, that settles it. It's going to happen. And since God had been the one who anointed David, 
then God would place the crown of Israel on David's head, and in time, God did just that. But you know, the interesting thing to me is how God chose to do this. It's fascinating. See, what God did was this, and this is what he often does. And remember this, he'll do this in your life too. He took a series of events that had been orchestrated by Satan, and he used these events to place the crown on David's head. Remember now, God didn't orchestrate these events. That's what I have to help you understand. Satan orchestrated them. God doesn't go about killing people. That is Satan. Satan is the one who comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Not God. But when Satan does his worst, God often does his best. That's my point. Now, he arranged things, Satan did, to bring about the tragic death of Saul and all of his sons, except one. But now, before we examine these events that led to the death of Saul, let's look back at the life of Saul for just a moment. Remember, his career had begun in a blaze of glory. He had everything. This man was tall. This man was good-looking. This man was athletic. This man was powerful. This man was engaging. But you may also recall that as the years passed, sin entered into his life, and sin eventually destroyed his character, ruined his mind, and then devastated his house. And at the end of his earthly sojourn, we find him doing what he did best, making war, fighting battles, leading men. Those were the places where Saul excelled. You wouldn't find a better man to do those jobs than Saul. And Saul's final demise began when he gathered his army at a place in Israel called Mount Gilboa. He had come there to lead his men against the hated Philistines. Now, at that time, the Philistines occupied the strategic fortress of Bethshan, which is located at the eastern opening of the great Jezreel Valley. I want to show you some pictures of Bethshan. It's spectacular. It is here that you've got so many of the just absolutely astounding things. This part of the city is the Roman city from just after the time of Jesus. They are busy restoring it. Fred took these pictures back, let's see, Fred, when was it, 1995? But Yeah, I think it was 1995. And this is what they've done. If I could show you these buildings today, many of these buildings have been completed by the archaeologists. Every piece of marble that you find there has been numbered, and they're putting it back together. But now back here, look at this. You see this trail going up here to the top? This is the famous tell of Bethshan. And on this tell, about this level, about this far up, was the city walls from the time of Saul and David and the Philistines. So the Philistine city set on this... And this tell, as you can see, is huge. This was a huge city at the time. One of the greatest fortified places in all of the world. And if you want to have fun, just take a hike up to the top of this thing. Uh, I'll tell you what, it will leave your tongue hanging totally out, even if you're young. And when you're my age, you cease to make the ascent. That's Beth Shan for you. Now... Saul knew that if the Philistines were able to keep this mighty fortress, Israel would never again be a unified nation. So Saul did what he had to do. Without consulting God, without talking to God at all, 
Saul prepared to take this city from the Philistines, which is exactly what Satan wanted him to attempt to do. Now, Saul was a military genius. Understand, this man was a military, he was a madman, he was insane, but a lot of insane people become very good generals. I heard the groan go. Now, he knew this area around Beth Shan very well. It was flatland, as Andrew said this morning. It was in the Jezreel Valley that's like a tabletop. Now, he knew he had gathered his forces where? On Mount Gilboa. Why? Because he's protected from the chariots. He's up on a slope. They're going to have to go uphill to fight him. And so he understood that this would place the Philistines at a great disadvantage, strategic disadvantage, because they had these iron chariots. These were the Abram's tank of that area. I mean, that's how you flanked your enemies. That, that, that's how you created havoc and desolation, was with these chariots. And believe me, they struck fear into the hearts of enemy combatants. So because of these chariots, Saul decided that he would not venture into the flatlands around Bethshan. He would not attempt to do what should have been done in military. If you were studying a military book, it would say, lay siege to the city. Bring the city down. But no, he says, I'm staying on the side of Gilboa so that I can fight on the slopes here of the mountain. And in so doing, force the Philistines to abandon their chariots. Well, the Philistines said, we know what you want, Saul. We're not going to give it to you. But meanwhile, they're sitting up here, and the Philistines have this great army deployed, and they're having to feed them, they're having to take care of them. This is costing money, and finally they run out of patience. And they decide to attack the Israelites on the mountain. So in mass, they ascended the slopes of Mount Gilboa, and the battle was joined. However, from the very beginning, things didn't go well for Saul. I want you to listen to... 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 1. The text reads as follows. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now as you can see, Israel's warriors simply couldn't hold off the Philistine foot soldiers. They, they came in great waves, and soon the armies of Israel were retreating toward the top of Gilboa. Now, what the army of Israel didn't know as well was the fact that a company of Philistines had circled the mountain, gone around to the backside, climbed the backside of the mountain, and they were already stationed, hidden, on the top of Mount Gilboa. And so, as the Israelites began to retreat, the Philistines came from both sides, and Israel was caught in a crossfire. And Saul's men experienced a deadly volley of arrows just being fired from every direction. They were caught in a crossfire. The fighting was fierce and it raged for hours. One by one, each of the sons of Saul fell to these arrows. In fact, listen to the words of 1 Samuel 31 two. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, Saul's sons. Yes, the tragedy of that verse is that one word. Jonathan, Saul's oldest, the crown prince of Israel, he too fell to the ground, mortally wounded. And when Jonathan ben Saul fell that day, one of the most interesting characters of the Old Testament era met his fate. So now with Jonathan, the two other sons dead, 
Saul is all alone. But I must tell you, as aged and as mentally tormented as Saul was at that time, he fought bravely. You've got to hand it to the old dude, because I'm telling you, he was as old as me at the time, and I can't imagine standing up there swinging a sword for hours on end. Samuel, but there was no escape from the death sentence that hung over the head of, of Saul. You see, the spirit of Samuel had told him he was doomed to die on this day, and died he did. Listen to the words of 1 Samuel 31.3. The battle became fierce against Saul. You hear those words? You feel The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him. Now, archers, plural, means he was hit many times and he was severely wounded by the archers. Now, remember this. Saul had been fighting these Philistines for 40 years. He knew all about these people. And he knew that they often tortured and even maimed their captives. And that was especially true if their captives happened to be royalty, happened to be a king. For example, there was no doubt that Saul had been told again and again throughout his lifetime about what happened to the great Samson, the mighty man of Israel, who could bring gates over his head and carry them away from the city of Gaza. A man who could kill 300 Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. I mean, this was a man of great power and strength. And yet the Philistines had captured him, blinded his eyes, put him on display, made a mockery of him, tortured him. Now Saul was too proud to endure this kind of mutilation or humiliation. So moments before the Philistines closed in to capture him, Saul would do what he always did. He took matters into his own hands. What he did was attempt to manipulate and redirect his circumstances. Now, beloved, don't throw any rocks at him, because you'd have to throw them at me. Because when I'm in a crisis, that's exactly what I do most of the time. Right? I try to manipulate my circumstances. I try to redirect them. Now, what causes me to do that? What, what is it in me that makes me do that? It's the same thing that caused Saul to do it. I want to be in control. Deep down inside, I feel that I cannot trust God to handle my life and its problems. I have to help God out. I don't want to take it away from God. I just want to help Him. Why? Because He may not do it right. So what did Saul do when he found himself surrounded by Philistines? Well, as I see it, he quickly called for the guy he hoped would be the equivalent of Dr. Jack Kevorkian. You know the guy we call Jack the Dripper? That's yeah, really bad. He looked for someone who would engage in euthanasia. Now, the only Israelite around, all the rest of them are dead. He's just got one left, and that's his armor bearer. And this is his story. Listen to 1 Samuel 31, 4a, the first half of it. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and th- thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. Now, do you get it? This young man is told, pierce me through with my sword. Shove it into my heart, kill me, and let me get this over with. But this fellow couldn't bring himself to kill the king of Israel. So when his armor bearer refused to kill him, Saul could only see one way out. First Samuel 31, 4b says this, But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. Now, can you see what's wrong with this picture? Sure you can. 
even standing there with Philistine arrows sticking through his armor. Now this guy is pierced all over. Arrows are sticking out from him in every direction. And his enemies closing in for the kill. The main concern of Saul was for this one thing. His image. He wanted to preserve his image, even in the eyes of his enemies. Think about it. Here was a man who was about to die. Within moments he would meet his maker. But was he repenting of his sins? No. Was he calling out to God for help? No. He didn't seem to care about any of these things. He just wanted to die like a king. I want to be royal when I die. Now, what was Saul's problem? What was his problem? What's Nick's problem? Just this. The answer is clear. From day one, his problem had been this. He was a man who lived his life according to the flesh. As Paul would say, he walked after the flesh and not after the spirit. In fact, most of the early church fathers considered this man, King Saul, to be the quintessential type and shadow of the fleshly dominated man. Now, I know some of you are asking, what does that mean, Pastor? What is a fleshly man or woman? What does it mean to be dominated by the flesh? Well, I have to demonstrate what I mean by using my circles. But first, let me make this clear. If Saul had been living in the New Testament era, we would think of him as a Christian. Now, I want you to understand that. If he was living in our era, we would think of him as a Christian. He was a spiritual man. We know this because he prophesied on occasion. God spoke through his mouth. So, some, so we might say he would have looked like this if he had lived in the New Testament era. Here's how he would have looked to us. Slide one. He would have lived in a body. He would have had a soul. And his spirit person would have been liberated from its captivity to the soul. That's all I'm saying. He lived in the New Testament era. That's how he would appear. However, his problem was related to the fact that he rarely listened to his spirit person. He didn't listen to the spirit. The door to his sensual desires, his bodily desires, stood wide open while the door to his spirit person, that person who was akin to God, was kept closed. Now let me illustrate Here's what I mean. When we are born for a second time, we are born in the Spirit, the Spirit is liberated from the soul, Christ, to, Christ comes to live in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. Well, Christ can't be in us if his mind isn't there. We have access to the mind of Christ. But look here, it bounces off. Why? Because most Christians have shut the door to their spirit person, and they leave the door between their body and their soul standing wide open. You with me? They're Christians. They're going to heaven when they die. But they live in this state where their soul, their mind, their will, and their emotions cooperates with the desires of their physical body. Now, if we study the life of King Saul, we will see that he can never seem to close that door. See, he just couldn't get that door closed. And he could never get this door open. Therefore, he could never say no to any of his three great bodily desires. Now, please understand this. Our bodily desires fall into three categories, which are these. The need for nourishment, the need for protection, and the need for procreation. Now, see, here are your three basic needs in life. Three words. You can't add anything to this or take away from it. We need to eat to live. 
right? We all have a need to reproduce our lives. Why? Because God said, be fruitful and multiply. God commanded us to do that. And then we need to protect ourselves. Now, these three desires are not bad in themselves. Is there there one of these that is bad? It's not bad to eat. It's not bad to reproduce. And it's not bad to protect ourselves. Okay? But a fleshly person, the problem is they always close the door to their spirit person. Now, in the Old Testament era, the human spirit person made its presence known as conscience. Now, yeah, there it is. In the Old Testament era, the human spirit person made its presence known as conscience. That's the key to understanding the Old Testament. But when the conscience became seared, which which it often does, the need for nourishment, the need for nourishment is morphed. Why? It's because the bodily desires are never satisfied. So, the need for nourishment becomes what? Gluttony. Are you with me? The need for procreation morphs into lust, fornication, and adultery. And the need for protection becomes aggression. Now, in the case of King Saul, he had very little trouble with his need for nourishment. See, I never read where he ever weighed a bit over 150 pounds. Well, I don't read that he didn't weigh 300 either, but <laughs> I, don't, I, I never read where he had a problem with this. Reproduction? I don't find him being a womanizer. No place in the scripture does it say that he was ever a womanizer. David was. Saul wasn't. You see, he didn't have any trouble there. But it was the last desire of the three desires he couldn't control. He was driven to protect what was his, including his throne, and this desire consumed and then destroyed him. That's what the flesh does. It eats away. Everything that is good and holy is. Now, everyone in this room has experienced these three desires. You're not fooling me. And we all struggle against them every day. In fact, most of us are more like Saul than we care to admit. At least I am. So, how do we know when we become like Saul? How do we know when we've been overtaken by our fleshly desires? How do we know? When we're walking after the flesh and not after the spirit, well, it's really quite simple. When we walk after the spirit, we produce certain fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's what our life looks like. When we walk after the flesh, we also produce fruit. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now, the works, oh, the flesh works. The flesh works on you. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. What does that mean? They can be seen. And everybody around you is going to see them. They're evident. And what are they? Oh, that apostle Paul, that meddlesome guy... He could have gone all day and not listed these. Why didn't he just say they're evident and stop? No. What he's got to do is he's got to paint a biography of Nick. No, not, not that first one. 
and not the second one. <laughs> now, but he, he says, here's what they are. Adultery, we know what that's akin to, don't we? Fornication, uncleanness there is sexual uncleanness, lewdness. We're all, all still here. Now, see, I'm, I'm so safe. So far, I'm doing so good. Are you with me? I'm doing wonderful. I'm breaking my arm, patting myself on the back. I'm so wonderful. Then he comes up here. He starts kind of messing around with idolatry. That's putting things in our life in front of God. Like church. For pastors. Because really, you can begin to stop doing Promote your relationship with God and start promoting your relationship with your church. And that's bad. That's idolatry. Sorcery. Now, sorcery, that's the witch of Endor. I don't think any of you are doing that. So you're okay. All of you are okay. Say, Ooh, thank God. Okay. But then he does this. Hatred. Yeah. This, James just spoke Philistine down here in the front row. Uh-oh. Hatred. Contentions. That means everywhere you go, you start a fight. Sounds like my sister. <laughs> Jealousies. Now, doggone it, Paul, stop it. It's not bad to be jealous, right? I could do a lot of worse things like kill people. No, it's all worse than this. Oops. Then this bad one. You road, road rage guys. <laughs> Outbursts of wrath. <laughs> Selfish ambitions. You see what he's done? He starts out with the really bad stuff. And when he loads you in feeling good about yourself, then he springs all this stuff on you. Selfish ambitions. Dissensions. False doctrine. That's heresies. Believing the wrong things. And then he goes back. No. He gets me again. Envy. Yeah. Nick does that. But then I, I feel good at, again. Murderers. Murders. Drunkenness. I don't drink, so I'm just in wonderful shape here. Revelries. I don't party. And the lie. <laughs> he said, in case I missed anything, I'm throwing a bunch of other stuff out there. <laughs> now, but, but now, here's what's interesting. Just so you don't leave in guilt, listen to his last words. He said, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? It means that you're never going to experience the joy of having that door open to the Spirit, to hear Christ speak to you, to, to enjoy that intimate relationship with Him. It's never going to happen when you're all tied up in these things. You know, incidentally, over the years I've found that most people die just exactly like they live. However it is that you live your life is how you die. 
just like Saul. In over 40 years of ministry and observing several hundred people die, I've never experienced a deathbed confession, not even one. I found that when ungodly people die, they usually die cursing, swearing, and hating. Let me say it, beloved. We die exactly as we live. Now, once King Saul was dead, the Bible says that the Philistines fell upon him, his warriors, and slaughtered them. And then the Philistines examined the bodies of the dead Israelites, stripping them of all their valuables. Of course, that's one of the things you did those days in war. In fact, listen to 1 Samuel 31, 8 through 10. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan, that city that you just saw. What a tragic sight, isn't it? Isn't it heartbreaking? This man who began so beautifully. His headless corpse hanging on the walls of the city of Bethshan. His head probably placed on a stave in the ground. Hanging alongside of him were his three sons. Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. But now as Paul Harvey used to say, let me tell you the rest of the story. 1 Samuel 31, 11-13. Let's read it together. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. You see, as bad as Saul was at times, he was also a very good man. He had this fleshly fixation with David, but there was a lot of things he did right. He was loved by many of his subjects. So what does all this have to do with you and me? Well, the death of Saul is literally filled with types and shadows of New Testament events, especially the death of Christ. Now, I want to show you on the screen how these two persons resemble each other. Look here, Saul's death. Initially, the death of Saul appeared to be the end of all hope for the people of Israel. Don't you think that the people, when they heard their king was dead, all of his sons are dead, the crown princes are dead, don't you think they thought, that's the end of everything? Yeah, he's gone. Well, think about Christ's death. Initially, the death of Christ appeared to be the end of all hope for the entire world. Here's the Son of God hanging on a tree, whispering the words, it is finished, and hangs his head. Hope appears to be gone. Number two, with the death of Saul, it seemed as if the adversary of the people of Israel, the Philistines, had won the final victory. Looked that way, didn't it? The Philistines are now in charge. But think about this. When Christ died, it seems as though the adversary of God and man, Satan, had won the final victory, didn't he? He thought he had. In fact, the Scripture says that he said that if he had have known what he had done, 
when he crucified Christ, he wouldn't have done it. It was his worst mistake, his worst nightmare. Thirdly, however, the death of Saul was not the end of anything, was it? It simply paved the way for an entirely new plan of national salvation for the people of Israel. God was working. What seemed hopeless to man was helpful to God. Now look at this. However, the death of Christ was not the end of anything either. It simply paved the way for an entirely new plan of spiritual salvation for the people of the world. If you would have looked at that body hanging on that cross, you would have said, Satan won. Oh, he didn't. He didn't win at all. Now, fourthly, the death of Saul opened the throne room of Israel to its rightful king, David ben Jesse. David will now become king. The man after God's own heart. The death of Christ opened the throne room of heaven to its rightful king, Jesus, the son of David. Fifthly, the death of Saul ended an era of dissatisfaction and failure in Israel and opened an era of grace. Because you can say one thing about David, he was the king of grace. He was a man who lived by grace, lived his life by grace. Now, the death of Christ ended an era of legalism and guilt in the world and opened also another era of grace. Wow. Is this great? So you see, the death of Saul was not in vain. Nothing that ever happens can't be taken by God and shaped into something beautiful. The Gaithers once wrote a song. I even hate to mention it here because most people, that's so long ago that you can't remember them. But the Gaithers wrote a song that says, Something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. And he made something beautiful of my life. That's my testimony. Oh yeah, I'm a failure. I have to admit it to you. I can't be anything else. There's no pedestals for me to climb up on. But I know one thing. Everything that happens in my life is directed by God. Saul's death achieved the purpose of issuing him the reign of David ben Jesse. The death of Christ made you and I sons and daughters of Almighty God. And that, my friends, is my teaching on Saul. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Ariel Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at arielministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Ariel Ministries in Thoraka, Kenya with Each One Feed One, We'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Aerial Ministries will support this missional effort. Visit aerialministries.com give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Thoraka mission, you can visit aerialministries.com missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with Each One Feed One and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future. 